Chapter Twenty One of Ruth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Lyons. Ruth by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter Twenty One. Mr. Farquhar's attentions transferred. The next morning, as Jemima and her mother sat at their work it came into the head of the former to remember her father's very marked way of thanking ruth the evening before what a favourite mrs denby is with papa said she i am sure i don't wonder at it did you notice mamma how he thanked her for coming here last night yes dear but i don't think it was all mrs bradshaw stopped short she was never certain if it was right or wrong to say anything not at all what asked jemima when she saw her mother was not going to finish the sentence not all because mrs denby came to tea here replied mrs bradshaw why what else could he be thanking her for what has she done asked jemima stimulated to curiosity by her mother's hesitating manner i don't know if i ought to tell you said mrs bradshaw oh very well said jemima rather annoyed nay dear your papa never said i was not to tell perhaps i may never mind i don't want to hear in a piqued tone there was silence for a while jemima was trying to think of something else but her thoughts would revert to the wonder what mrs denby could have done for her father i think i may tell you though said mrs bradshaw half questioning Jemima had the honour not to urge any confidence, but she was too curious to take any active step toward repressing it. Mrs. Bradshaw went on. I think you deserve to know. It is partly your doing that papa is so pleased with Mrs. Denby. He is going to buy her a silk gown this morning, and I think you ought to know why. Why? asked Jemima. Because papa is so pleased to find that you mind what she says i mind what she says to be sure i do and always did but why should papa give her a gown for that i think he ought to give it me rather said jemima half laughing i am sure he would dear he will give you one i am certain if you want one he was so pleased to see you like your old self to mr farquhar last night we neither of us could think what had come over you this last month, but now all seems right. A dark cloud came over Jemima's face. She did not like this close observation and constant comment on her manners, and what had Ruth to do with it? I am glad you were pleased, said she very coldly. Then, after a pause, she added, But you have not told me what Mrs. Denby had to do with my good behavior. "'Did she not speak to you about it?' asked Mrs. Bradshaw, looking up. "'No, why should she? She has no right to criticise what I do. She would not be so impertinent,' said Jemima, feeling very uncomfortable and suspicious. "'Yes, love, she would have had a right, for papa had desired her to do it.' "'Papa desired her? What do you mean, mamma? "'Oh, dear, I dare say I should not have told you,' said Mrs. Bradshaw, perceiving from Jemima's tone of voice that something had gone wrong. "'Only you spoke 
as if it would be impertinent in Mrs. Denby, and I am sure she would not do anything that was impertinent. You know, it would be but right for her to do what papa told her, and he said a great deal to her the other day about finding out why you were so cross, and bringing you right. And you are right now, dear, said Mrs. Bradshaw soothingly, thinking that Jemima was annoyed, like a good child, at the recollection of how naughty she had been. Then papa is going to give Mrs. Denby a gown because I was civil to Mr. Farquhar last night? Yes, dear, said Mrs. Bradshaw, more and more frightened at Jemima's angry manner of speaking, low-toned but very indignant. Jemima remembered, with smouldered anger, Ruth's pleading way of willing her from her sullenness the night before management everywhere, but in this case it was peculiarly revolting, so much so that she could hardly bear to believe that the seemingly transparent Ruth had lent herself to it. "'Are you sure, mamma, that papa asked Mrs. Denby to make me behave differently? It seems so strange.' "'I am quite sure. He spoke to her last Friday morning in the study.' I remember it was Friday, because Mrs. Dean was working here. Jemima remembered now that she had gone into the schoolroom on the Friday, and had found her sisters lounging about, and wondering what papa could possibly want with Mrs. Denby. After this conversation, Jemima repulsed all Ruth's timid efforts to ascertain the cause of her disturbance, and to help her if she could. Ruth's tender, sympathizing manner, as she saw Jemima daily looking more wretched, was distasteful to the latter in the highest degree. She could not say that Mrs. Denby's conduct was positively wrong. It might even be quite right, but it was inexpressibly repugnant to her to think of her father consulting with a stranger. A week ago she almost considered Ruth as a sister how to manage his daughter, so as to obtain the end he wished for, yes, even if that end was for her own good. She was thankful and glad to see a brown paper parcel lying on the hall table, with a note in Ruth's handwriting addressed to her father. She knew what it was, the grey silk dress, that she was sure Ruth would never accept. No one henceforward could induce Jemima to enter into conversation with Mr. Farquhar. She suspected manoeuvring in the simplest actions, and was miserable in this constant state of suspicion. She would not allow herself to like Mr. Farquhar, even when he said things the most after her own heart. She heard him one evening talking with her father about the principles of trade. Her father stood out for the keenest, sharpest work, consistent with honesty. If he had not been her father, she would, perhaps, have thought some of his sayings inconsistent with true Christian honesty. He was for driving hard bargains, exacting interest, and payment of just bills to a day. That was, he said, the only way in which trade could be conducted. Once allow a margin of uncertainty— or where feelings instead of maxims were to be the guide, and all hope of there ever being any good men of business was ended. 
suppose a delay of a month in requiring payment might save a man's credit prevent his becoming a bankrupt put in mr farquhar i would not give it him i would let him have money to set up again as soon as he had passed the bankruptcy court if he never passed i might in some cases make him an allowance but i would always keep my justice and my charity separate and yet charity in your sense of the word degrades justice tempered with mercy and consideration elevates that is not justice justice is certain and inflexible no mr farquhar you must not allow any quixotic notions to mingle with your conduct as a tradesman and so they went on jemima's face glowing with sympathy in all mr farquhar said till once on looking up suddenly with sparkling eyes she saw a glance of her father's which told her as plain as words can say that he was watching the effect of mr farquhar's speeches upon his daughter she was chilled thenceforward she thought her father prolonged the argument in order to call out those sentiments which he knew would most recommend his partner to his daughter she would so fain have let herself love mr farquhar but this constant manoeuvring in which she did not feel clear that he did not take a passive part made her sick at heart she even wished that they might not go through the form of pretending to try to gain her consent to the marriage if it involved all this premeditated action and speech-making such moving about of every one into their right places like pieces at chess she felt as if she would rather be bought openly like an oriental daughter where no one is degraded in their own eyes by being parties to such a contract the consequence of all this admirable management of mr bradshaw's would have been very unfortunate to mr farquhar who was innocent of all connivance in any of the plots indeed would have been as much annoyed at them as jemima had he been aware of them but that the impression made upon him by ruth on the evening i have so lately described was deepened by the contrast which her behaviour made to miss bradshaw's on one or two more recent occasions there was no use he thought in continuing attentions so evidently distasteful to jemima to her a young girl hardly out of the schoolroom he probably appeared like an old man and he might even lose the friendship with which she used to regard him and which was and ever would be very dear to him if he persevered in trying to be considered as a lover he should always feel affectionately toward her her very faults gave her an interest in his eyes for which he had blamed himself most conscientiously and most uselessly when he was looking upon her as his future wife but which the said conscience would learn to approve of when she sank down to the place of a young friend over whom he might exercise a good and salutary interest mrs denbigh if not many months older in years had known sorrow and cares so early that she was much older in character besides her shy reserve and her quiet daily walk within the lines of duty were much in accordance with mr farquhar's notion of what a wife should be 
Still, it was a wrench to take his affections away from Jemima. If she had not helped him to do so by every means in her power, he could never have accomplished it. Yes, by every means in her power had Jemima alienated her lover, her beloved, for so he was in fact, and now her quick-sighted eyes saw he was gone for ever, past recall, for did not her jealous, sore heart feel, even before he himself was conscious of the fact, that he was drawn towards sweet, lovely, composed, and dignified Ruth, one who always thought before she spoke, as Mr. Farquhar used to bid Jemima do, who never was tempted by sudden impulse, but walked the world calm and self-governed. What now availed Jemima's reproaches, as she remembered the days when he had watched her with earnest, attentive eyes, as he now watched Ruth, and the time since, when, led astray by her morbid fancy, she had turned away from all his advances. It was only in March, last March, he called me Dear Jemima. Ah, don't I remember it well, the pretty nosegay of greenhouse flowers that he gave me in exchange for the wild daffodils, and how he seemed to care for the flowers I gave him, and how he looked at me and thanked me, that is all gone and over now. Her sisters came in bright and glowing. Oh, Jemima, how nice and cool you are, sitting in this shady room. She had felt it even chilly. We have been such a long walk. We are so tired, it is so hot. Why did you go, then? said she. Oh, we wanted to go. We would not have stayed at home on any account. It has been so pleasant, said Mary. We have been to Scoreside Wood to gather wild strawberries, said Elizabeth. Such a quantity! We've left a whole basketful in the dairy. Mr. Farquhar says he'll teach us to dress them in the way he learnt in Germany, if we can get him some hock. Do you think Papa will let us have some? Was Mr. Farquhar with you? asked Jemima, a dull light coming into her eyes. Yes, we told him this morning that Mamma wanted us to take some old linen to the lame man at Scawside Farm, and that we meant to coax Mrs. Denby to let us go into the wood and gather strawberries, said Elizabeth. I thought he would make some excuse and come, said the quick-witted Mary, as eager and thoughtless an observer of one love affair as of another and quite forgetting that not many weeks ago she had fancied an attachment between him and Jemima. "'Did you? I did not,' replied Elizabeth. "'At least I never thought about it. I was quite startled when I heard his horse's feet behind us on the road. He said he was going to the farm and could take our basket. Was it not kind of him?' Jemima did not answer, so Mary continued. "'You know,' It's a great pull up to the farm, and we were so hot already. The road was quite white and baked. It hurt my eyes terribly. I was so glad when Mrs. Denby said we might turn into the wood. The light was quite green there. The branches are so thick overhead. And there are whole beds of wild strawberries, said Elizabeth, taking up the tale now Mary was out of breath. Mary fanned herself with her bonnet while Elizabeth went on. "'You know where the grey rock crops out, don't you, Jemima? Well, there was a complete carpet of strawberry runners, so pretty. 
and we could hardly step without treading the little bright scarlet berries underfoot. We did so wish for Leonard, put in Mary. Yes, but Mrs. Denby gathered a great many for him, and Mr. Farquhar gave her all his. I thought you said he had gone on to Dawson's farm, said Jemima. Oh, yes, he just went up there, and then he left his horse there like a wise man, and came to us in the pretty cool green wood. Oh, Jemima, it was so pretty, little flecks of light coming down here and there through the leaves, and quivering on the ground. You must go with us to-morrow. Yes, said Mary, we're going again to-morrow. We could not gather nearly all the strawberries. And Leonard is to go, too, to-morrow. Yes, we thought of such a capital plan. That's to say, Mr. Farquhar thought of it. We wanted to carry Leonard up the hill in a king's cushion, but Mrs. Denby would not hear of it. She said it would tire us so, and yet she wanted him to gather strawberries. And so, interrupted Mary, for by this time the two girls were almost speaking together, Mr. Farquhar is to bring him up before him on his horse. You'll go with us, won't you, dear Jemima? asked Elizabeth. It will be at— No, I can't go said Jemima abruptly. Don't ask me, I can't. The little girls were hushed into silence by her manner, for whatever she might be to those above her in age and position, to those below her, Jemima was almost invariably gentle. She felt that they were wondering at her. Go upstairs and take off your things. You know Papa does not like you to come into this room in the shoes in which you have been out. She was glad to out her sister's short, in the details which they were so mercilessly inflicting, details which she must harden herself to, before she could hear them quietly and unmoved. She saw that she had lost her place as the first object in Mr. Farquhar's eyes, a position she hardly cared for while she was secure in the enjoyment of it, but the charm of it now was redoubled in her acute sense of how she forfeited it by her own doing and her own fault for if he was the cold calculating man her father had believed him to be and had represented him as being to her would he care for a portionless widow in humble circumstances like mrs denby no money no connection encumbered with her boy the very action which proved Mr. Farquhar to be lost to Jemima reinstated him on his throne in her fancy, and she must go on in hushed quietness, quivering with every fresh token of his preference for another. That other, too, one so infinitely more worthy of him than herself, so that she could not have even the poor comfort of thinking that he had no discrimination and was throwing himself away on a common or worthless person. Ruth was beautiful, gentle, good, and conscientious. The hot color flushed up into Jemima's sallow face as she became aware that even while she acknowledged these excellences on Mrs. Denby's part, she hated her. The recollection of her marble face wearied her even to sickness. The tones of her low voice were irritating from their very softness. 
Her goodness, undoubted as it was, was more distasteful than many faults which had more savour of human struggle in them. "'What was this terrible demon in her heart?' asked Jemima's better angel. "'Was she indeed given up to possession? Was not this the old stinging hatred which had prompted so many crimes, the hatred of all sweet virtues which might win the love denied to us?' the old anger that wrought in the elder brother's heart till it ended in the murder of the gentle Abel, while yet the world was young. "'Oh, God, help me! I did not know I was so wicked,' cried Jemima, aloud in her agony. It had been a terrible glimpse into the dark, lurid gulf, the capability for evil, in her heart. She wrestled with the demon, but he would not depart. It was to be a struggle, whether or not she was to be given up to him, in this her time of sore temptation. All the next day long she sat and pictured the happy strawberry gathering going on, even then in pleasant Scorside wood. Every touch of fancy which could heighten her idea of their enjoyment, and of Mr. Farquhar's attention to the blushing, conscious Ruth, every such touch which would add a pang to her self-reproach and keen jealousy was added to her imagination she got up and walked about to try and stop her over-busy fancy by bodily exercise but she had eaten little all day and was weak and faint in the intense heat of the sunny garden even the long grass walk under the filbert hedge was parched and dry in the glowing august sun yet her sisters found her there when they returned walking quickly up and down as if to warm herself on some winter's day they were very weary and not half so communicative as on the day before now that jemima was craving for every detail to add to her agony yes leonard came up before mr farquhar oh how hot it is jemima do sit down and i'll tell you about it but i can't tell if you keep walking so i can't sit still to-day said jemima springing up from the turf as soon as she had sat down tell me i can hear you while i walk about oh but i can't shout i can hardly speak i am so tired mr farquhar brought leonard "'You've told me that before,' said Jemima sharply. "'Well, I don't know what else to tell. "'Somebody had been since yesterday "'and gathered nearly all the strawberries off the grey rock. "'Jemima, Jemima,' said Elizabeth faintly, "'I am so dizzy I think I am ill.' "'The next minute the tired girl lay swooning on the grass. "'It was an outlet for Jemima's fierce energy.' with a strength she had never again and never had known before she lifted up her fainting sister and bidding mary run and clear the way she carried her in through the open garden door up the wide old-fashioned stairs and laid her on the bed in her own room where the breeze from the window came softly and pleasantly through the green shade of the vine leaves and jessamine give me the water run for mamma mary said jemima as she saw that the fainting fit did not yield to the usual remedy of a horizontal position and water sprinkling dear dear lizzie said jemima kissing the pale unconscious face 
I think you loved me, darling. The long walk on the hot day had been too much for the delicate Elizabeth, who was fast outgrowing her strength. It was many days before she regained any portion of her spirit and vigour. After that fainting fit she lay listless and weary, without appetite or interest, through the long, sunny autumn weather, on the bed or on the couch in Jemima's room, whither she had been carried at first. It was a comfort to Mrs. Bradshaw to be able at once to discover what it was that had knocked up Elizabeth. She did not rest easily until she had settled upon a cause for every ailment or illness in the family. It was a stern consolation to Mr. Bradshaw, during his time of anxiety respecting his daughter, to be able to blame somebody. He could not, like his wife, have taken comfort from an inanimate fact. He wanted the satisfaction of feeling that someone had been in fault, or else this never could have happened. Poor Ruth did not need his implied reproaches. When she saw her gentle Elizabeth lying feeble and languid, her heart blamed her for thoughtlessness so severely as to make her take all Mr. Bradshaw's words and hints as too light censure for the careless way in which, to please her own child, she had allowed her two pupils to fatigue themselves with such long walks. She begged hard to take her share of nursing. Every spare moment she went to Mr. Bradshaw's and asked with earnest humility to be allowed to pass them with Elizabeth, and, as it was often a relief to have her assistance, Mrs. Bradshaw received these entreaties very kindly and desired her to go upstairs, where Elizabeth's pale countenance brightened when she saw her but where Jemima sat in silent annoyance that her own room was now become open ground for one whom her heart rose up against to enter in and be welcomed. Whether it was that Ruth, who was not an inmate of the house, brought with her a fresher air, more change of thought to the invalid, I do not know, but Elizabeth always gave her a peculiarly tender greeting, and if she had sunk down into languid fatigue in spite of all Jemima's endeavours to interest her, she roused up into animation when Ruth came in with a flower, a book, or a brown and ruddy pear, sending out the warm fragrance it retained from the sunny garden wall at Chapel House. The jealous dislike which Jemima was allowing to grow up in her heart against Ruth was, as she thought, never shown in word or deed. She was cold in manner because she could not be hypocritical, but her words were polite and kind in purport, and she took pains to make her actions the same as formerly. But rule and line may measure out the figure of a man. It is the soul that gives it life, and there was no soul, no inner meaning, breathing out in Jemima's actions. Ruth felt the change acutely. She suffered from it some time before she ventured to ask what had occasioned it. One day she took Miss Bradshaw by surprise, when they were alone together for a few minutes, by asking her if she had vexed her in any way she was so changed. It is sad when friendship has cooled so far as to render such a question necessary. 
Jemima went rather paler than usual, and then made answer. Changed? How do you mean? How am I changed? What do I say or do different from what I used to do? But the tone was so constrained and cold that Ruth's heart sank within her. She knew now, as well as words could have told her, that not only had the old feeling of love passed away from Jemima, but that it had gone unregretted and no attempt had been made to recall it. Love was very precious to Ruth now, as of old time. It was one of the faults of her nature to be ready to make any sacrifices for those who loved her, and to value affection almost above its price. She had yet to learn the lesson that it is more blessed to love than to be beloved, and lonely as the impressible years of her youth had been, without parents, without brother or sister, it was perhaps no wonder that she clung tenaciously to every symptom of regard, and could not relinquish the love of any one without a pang. The doctor, who was called in to Elizabeth, prescribed sea air as the best means of recruiting her strength. Mr. Bradshaw, who liked to spend money ostentatiously, went down straight to Abermouth, and engaged a house for the remainder of the autumn, for, as he told the medical man, money was no object to him in comparison with his children's health, and the doctor cared too little about the mode in which his remedy was administered to tell Mr. Bradshaw that lodgings would have done as well, or better than the complete house he had seen fit to take, for it was now necessary to engage servants and take much trouble which might have been obviated, and Elizabeth's removal effected more quietly and speedily if she had gone into lodgings. As it was, she was weary of hearing all the planning and talking and deciding and undeciding and redeciding before it was possible for her to go. Her only comfort was in the thought that dear Mrs. Denby was to go with her. It had not been entirely by way of pompously spending his money that Mr. Bradshaw had engaged this seaside house. He was glad to get his little girls and their governess out of the way for a busy time was impending, when he should want his head clear for electioneering purposes, and his house clear for hospitality. He was the mover of a project for bringing forward a man on the liberal and dissenting interest, to contest the election with the old Tory member, who had on several successive occasions walked over the course, as he and his family owned half the town, and votes and rent were paid alike to the landlord. Kings of Eccleston had Mr. Cranworth and his ancestors been this many a long year. Their right was so little disputed that they never thought of acknowledging the allegiance so readily paid to them. The old feudal feeling between landowner and tenant did not quake prophetically at the introduction of manufactures the Cranworth family ignored the growing power of the manufacturers, more especially as the principal person engaged in the trade was a dissenter. But notwithstanding this lack of patronage from the one great family in the neighborhood, the business flourished, increased, and spread wide, and the dissenting head thereof looked around, about the time of which I speak, 
and felt himself powerful enough to defy the great Cranworth interest even in their hereditary stronghold, and by so doing avenge the slights of many years, slights which rankled in Mr. Bradshaw's mind as much as if he did not go to chapel twice every Sunday and pay the largest pew-rent of any member of Mr. Benson's congregation. Accordingly, Mr. Bradshaw had applied to one of the liberal parliamentary agents in London, a man whose only principle was to do wrong on the liberal side. He would not act right or wrong for a Tory, but for a Whig the latitude of his conscience had never yet been discovered. It was possible Mr. Bradshaw was not aware of the character of this agent. At any rate, he knew he was the man for his purpose, which was to hear of someone who would come forward as a candidate for the representation of Eccleston on the dissenting interest. There are in round numbers about six hundred voters, said he. Two hundred are decidedly in the Cranworth interest. Dare not offend Mr. Cranworth, poor souls. Two hundred more we may calculate upon as pretty certain factory hands or people connected with our trade in some way or another who are indignant at the stubborn way in which cranworth has contested the right of water two hundred are doubtful don't much care either way said the parliamentary agent of course we must make them care mr bradshaw rather shrank from the knowing look with which this was said he hoped that Mr. Pilson did not mean to allude to bribery, but he did not express this hope, because he thought it would deter the agent from using this means, and it was possible it might prove to be the only way. And if he, Mr. Bradshaw, once embarked on such an enterprise, there must be no failure. By some expedient or another, success must be certain, or he could have nothing to do with it. The parliamentary agent was well accustomed to deal with all kinds and shades of scruples. He was most at home with men who had none, but still he could allow for human weakness, and he perfectly understood Mr. Bradshaw. "'I have a notion I know of a man who will just suit your purpose. Plenty of money, does not know what to do with it, in fact. Tired of yachting, travelling, wants something new.' I heard, through some of the means of intelligence I employ, that not very long ago he was wishing for a seat in Parliament. A liberal? said Mr. Bradshaw. Decidedly, belongs to a family who were in the long Parliament in their day. Mr. Bradshaw rubbed his hands. Dissenter? asked he. No, no, not so far as that, but very lax church. What is his name? asked Mr. Bradshaw eagerly. "'Excuse me. Until I am certain that he would like to come forward for Eccleston, I think I had better not mention his name.' The anonymous gentleman did like to come forward, and his name proved to be Dunn. He and Mr. Bradshaw had been in correspondence during all the time of Mr. Ralph Cranworth's illness, and when he died everything was arranged ready for a start even before the Cranworths had determined who should keep the seat warm till the eldest son came of age, for the father was already member for the county. Mr. Dunn 
was to come down to canvas in person, and was to take up his abode at Mr. Bradshaw's, and therefore it was that the seaside house within twenty miles' distance of Eccleston was found to be so convenient as an infirmary and nursery for those members of his family who were likely to be useless, if not positive encumbrances, during the forthcoming election. End of chapter 21